we're going to be in Genesis chapters 40 through 41. These are long chapters, so we're just going to read literally the end of chapter 41. Um, And I have reason for it, which will hopefully become abundantly clear as we go, but just so you guys know that you didn't accidentally sleep through last Sunday or something and miss a whole bunch. We're just reading the end of our portion of text today. You didn't miss anything between last week and this week, and then we'll be preaching through the whole thing. So, Chad, go for it. I'll be reading chapter 41, 37 through 57, and you guys may stand as we read the Word of God. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath paneah And he gave him in marriage to Asnath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities." He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asnath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So the word of God, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we just sang, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. I pray that today would be a day where chains are broken, where hearts are set free, where we see your hand at work in the life of Joseph, and through that, see your hand at work in our own lives. Would you keep us from bitterness? Would you keep us from the type of wicked frustration that imprisons our own souls? 
would you flame the dungeon, light it so that we might leave the darkness and walk into the light. So God, shine your light through us this morning. Shine your light into us this morning as we open up your word. May it be a torch of deliverance. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. So, the other week, my family and I, we had the, the privilege of hosting a one-year-old's birthday party. You know, the party was, was pretty small, like just uh, my daughter, Emmeline, my wife, myself, uh, the parents of the birthday girl, the birthday girl herself, and her, her older brother. So you would think, you know, less kids, less potential for drama, right? Wrong. <laughs> so wrong. Um, as part of the celebration, the birthday girl was given a, a cute little sash, um, a plastic bejeweled little like birthday scepter, and a rainbow plastic crown. Now, my daughter loves princesses. Our car cruises down to the road, cruises down the road to the tune of "Let It Go" more often than I care to admit. My daughter, when she's in trouble, in the most adorably manipulative way possible, will look at me with the saddest puppy dog eyes and say, "I'm not a princess anymore." It's like, oh, you're still a princess. You're just also in trouble, (laughs) adorable little brat. (laughs) So so when Emmeline caught a glance of this rainbow crown, she fixated on it. Like, we were able to hold her back for a little while, but the birthday girl, she eventually lost interest in the crown the way one-year-olds lose interest in just about everything. And so Emmy, she finally got her hands on the crown, and, and she gloried in that crown. She made sure that we all knew that she was a princess. In her mind, this was her birthday party now, which I was willing to let slide, you know, at least for a time, until we needed to give the crown back to the birthday girl so that we could take some pictures. She refused to give it up. Surprise, surprise. And it escalated from there. Have you ever tried to reason with a toddler? (laughs) Can we give the birthday girl back her crown? No. Wouldn't you want to wear a crown on your birthday? No. Can you just let her have it for like a picture? No. And with every question, as you can tell, she screamed louder and louder until I just told her, Emmy girl, Emmy, 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 calm down, calm down. She calms slightly. I tell her, Emmy, Did you know that if we give up our crowns now, one day Jesus is going to give us the biggest, most beautiful, most glorious crown we've ever seen? And she looks up at me and goes, Really? With rainbows? I hadn't anticipated this level of theology from a (laughs) two-year-old. So as she stared up at me expectantly, I went through my memory and thought, you know, I'm pretty sure somewhere in the book of Revelation, rainbows are mentioned. So I turned to her and said, as a theologically sound pastor and responsible parent, sure, whatever, (laughs) let's go get some cake. (laughs) So she gave back the crown. Losing a crown in order to gain a crown. Losing your life so that you can find it. These are big biblical themes. Give and you will receive. Lose and you will gain. And it all sounds very noble and righteous in the abstract, right? Like, but, but what happens though, if you're not giving up your life, but your life is being taken from you? 
What do you do when your crown is being stripped from you? What happens when, apart from your own decisions, apart from your own plans, you're stripped of all your comforts, your livelihood, your family, your status, your very identity? In some ways, the idea of giving up a crown is much easier than the idea of having one taken from you. And so with that in mind, let's refresh where we are in the book of Genesis. In a very real way, the whole world was going to hell in a handbasket until God stepped into the pages of Genesis chapter 11 and told an old man and his barren wife, I am going to save the world through your family. So that man had a son who had a son who had 12 sons. And largely speaking, as we've been going through the book of Genesis, you guys are aware of this, they're all screw-ups, right? Like, to be fair, to be totally honest, like, they seem to be faithful when it counted the most. Like, they're, they're able to pull it together just in the nick of time. But between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's enough questionable behavior for anyone to justifiably look up at God and say, really? These guys? That's your plan? And you'd be justified in thinking that way until you get to this fourth generation, where you, among these 12 sons of Jacob you finally have a guy who has his head screwed on straight. Joseph was the favorite son of his father, Jacob. And if it bothers you to know that Jacob had a favorite son, just know that it should. <laughs> like, oftentimes the stuff that bothers us in the Bible is there intentionally so. So anyway, like, if you are a parent and wondering, you know, how can I really get my kids to just resent each other? One way to do that is to choose a favorite and make sure everybody else knows it. Like, maybe give them a colorful coat or something like that. That ought to do the trick. <laughs> so Joseph, you know, as if to dig his pit a little deeper, he had a little bit of a big mouth. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions. Now, pay attention to this part because it was two dreams in particular, two dreams in particular, in which he saw his whole family, all his brothers, mom and dad included, bowed down to him. Now, no one responded to these dreams particularly well, least of all his brothers. And since his brothers were already resentful of him, the dreams were just a bridge too far. And so when they found opportunity, they ambushed him. After originally intending to kill him, one of the brothers de-escalated the situation slightly, and they're like, all right, well, we'll just sell him into slavery instead, I guess. They repented, kind of. And then they told their dad that he's like eaten by a bear or something. Like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Eaten by an animal. So Joseph goes into a foreign land as a slave. And as we learned last week, he's a pretty decent slave. He's actually such a good slave. He serves so well that he becomes the master of his master Potiphar's house. And that's great until Potiphar's wife sees this Hebrew hunk, as, as Aaron mentioned last week, and tries to seduce him over and over again. And failing that, she ends up falsely accusing him of rape. At this point, a silenced Joseph is thrown into prison, where he again serves in such a way that you could say he becomes the master of the prison. And that's where we are today. If you couldn't tell already, I'm kind of taking a different approach to this sermon than I typically do. There are no points today. This is a pointless sermon. But here's the thing. 
God could have made the Bible a lot shorter for us by just giving us a list of facts about what he's like and what he expects from us. Instead of a divinely inspired book, we would have a divinely inspired PowerPoint and God would say, good luck to all of you. Get on with your life. But that's not the sort of God that God is. Because God is a good author. He's not merely telling us what he is like. He's not telling us what he's like. He is showing us. He is showing and not telling And not only is he doing that in the Bible, but he is doing that in your life right now. And I hope you see that by the end of today. Because he's doing it in Joseph's life, as we'll see. So instead of points, we're just going to spend our time walking through this story about God's providential, loving, tender care of his son, Joseph. And if you want to keep an eye out for anything in particular, I just look for these themes. I'm not going to even highlight them. You'll see them if you're reading with a discerning eye. Observe how Joseph walked in wisdom, walked in wisdom, avoided bitterness, kept the faith, and sought glory. And so we pick up with Joseph running the prison in Genesis chapter 40, verse 1, where it says this. Sometime after this, the cupbearer the, the cup of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended to them. They continued for some time in his custody. So why are these royal officials being put into prison? You know, it's not entirely clear. All we really have here is that it says that, he, uh, that Pharaoh was angry with them. <clears throat> so, what's the point? I mean, well, what could be going on, I guess? What are some of the possibilities? Well, first off, Egypt didn't have articles of impeachment. So, if you had a ruler that you didn't like, a really effective way to get rid of him was to kill him. Okay, so, and presumably a good, and e- well, e- easy, uh, a, an effective way to do that would be to infiltrate his inner circle and get them on your side and then, you know, maybe poison him or something like that. Po- like, use his closest confidants to, to kind of corrupt the system there. So the chief cupbearer, it's a pretty good job. Pretty good job. Like, your, your job is literally, you're in charge of making sure that the king's wine is good. <laughs> How do you do that? You sit around and drink wine all day. Like, you just taste it, you sip it. That's all you do. Now, however, there, there, is, there is a drawback because, you know, you're also there to make sure the wine isn't poisoned. So, you know, they, I'm not sure if that enhances or detracts from the wine drinking experience. But uh, regardless, it's probably better than most jobs in ancient Egypt. I think we can all agree on that. Similar with the baker. Um, Ancient Egyptian texts indicate that they had developed 38 different types of pastries and 50 different varieties of bread. Egypt was very much not gluten-free and was kind of like the Panera of the ancient world. Now, like I said, it's unclear why these guys were jailed. Did Pharaoh suspect treason? Maybe. Was Pharaoh just being petty? Possibly. Like, Pharaoh could have been a lot more like me when I go to Panera, which... Okay, don't get me wrong. I think the food of Panera is delicious. It's just every time I leave, I think to myself, man, I could have stayed hungry for a lot less money than this. But the idea here is that there is political turmoil in Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh is jailing his own staff. 
So what's the point of that, though? Amidst the political turmoil, amidst the personal tragedies affecting both the cupbearer and, and the baker, amidst the vocational arrangement in the prison, the invisible hand of God is at work. Now, is there something that we can walk away with from that in the year 2019? Is it worth remembering that the invisible hand of God is at work in the midst of political turmoil? Is it worth remembering that the invisible hand of God is at work in the midst of your personal tragedies? Is it worth remembering that God is in sovereign control when he called you to your job? I mean, after all, that's what the word vocation means. It's God's vocalizing, his calling you to your profession. How does that change the way that you view work? Let's put a pin in that idea and read in verse 5. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. Excuse me. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? So let's stick with this theme of our jobs here for just a little while longer. Why do we have jobs? In Tim Keller's excellent book entitled Every Good Endeavor, which I found out this morning, we're actually selling out there for the low, low price of 10 bucks. Completely recommend it. Um, He makes several excellent, excellent, excellent points. One is that God has arranged the world in such a way that in order for us to be prosperous, we need to do something for other people. It seems so basic, but I was like, whoa, when I first read that. You know, I was asked recently in an interview why I wanted to work for this company on their project. And because everyone in here who has spoken with me for any length of time at all knows that I don't give short answers, I answered their question by saying to them, well, let's take a step back and ask why any of us have jobs in the first place. (laughs) I know, I know, got the job. But I I went on to tell them that I believe we have careers because we try to produce a positive good for humanity. So whether you're the custodial staff at a hotel or if you're the CEO of a major corporation, whether or not you realize it, you are trying to create something that will benefit other people. And so if you can find a job where you recognize that you're providing something for other people, something that other people need, something that makes their lives better then that's something you should wholeheartedly pursue in terms of your work and your calling and your vocation. Now, you may not think about this every day when you go to work, but if you are a Christian, you should. Now, this is the way that God has arranged the world. Psalm 104 verse 15 says this, that God makes wine to gladden the heart of man and bread to strengthen his heart. Let me ask you, how does God make bread? Like, okay, As an aside, like there is the miraculous, like the manna in the wilderness and Jesus multiplying the loaves. But typically, how does God make bread? Well, he uses the farmers to grow the grain. And then he uses the miller to mill the flour. And then he uses the supply chain to get that flour to its destination. And then he uses the baker to combine all the ingredients and bake them. And he uses another supply chain to get those breads to all the stores, where he uses the staff at the store to stock the shelves, to man the the desks, and sell it to the hardworking father or mother so that they can feed their family. That's how God makes bread. And so this is an intensely tangible way that we can love our neighbors. God loves the world 
through our hands, even if we don't realize that he's doing it. But as Christians, like, we should recognize that this is at the foundation of our job. And so if you can't find a way that your job in particular provides benefit to other people, like, honestly, like, start maybe thinking about getting a new one. Or come talk to me, because sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll have these jobs that feel dead-end and silly and pointless, and you just need an outside perspective to remind you, like, no, you're, you're serving and loving other people through whatever it is that you do. So do it with excellence. So um, Joseph, he kind of intuitively understands this idea of vocation. Joseph can recognize the invisible hand of God as, it, as he sees it, you know, in his life in Canaan, as he sees it, as he's thrust into Egypt, he sees God's invisible hand as he enters into prison. And since he recognizes that it's God's hand in his life, he can actually look at the needs of other people. You know, instead of the brash 17-year-old Joseph that we met in Genesis chapter 37, who told his already aggrieved brothers, like, hey, you guys are going to bow to me someday, he enters the prison And he notices the faces of these prisoners are troubled. And so with genuine selflessness, he approaches them and asks, what's the matter? Verse 8, they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. They tell him that they had, all right, how many prisoners are there? Class, everyone paying attention? How many prisoners? Two, yeah. How many dreams then? One dream per prisoner equals two dreams. Thank you, well done. Gosh, you guys are really good. All right, real quick. Um, this is kind of an aside, but we here at The Crossing, we still believe that God does communicate to people through dreams. Now, I personally haven't seen this much in my own life, but my best man, Chevis, who used to be part of The Crossing until he moved away, um, he was a big, big, big believer in this. So from time to time, I'd just test it and be like, I'd go tell him a dream and he'd listen and interpret and I'd listen to him back and be like, nah, I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. So however, however, in spite of that, um, if any of you are paying attention at all to what's going on in the Middle East, particularly in the parts of the Middle East where Christianity is illegal, where there are no churches, where there is no gospel witness, there are Muslims in that part of the world that are coming to Christ by the hundreds, if not the thousands, because Jesus keeps coming to them again and again and again in dreams and visions, and he's calling a people to himself through this avenue. Like this is the, like sometimes people, I've, I've read testimonies of people for like three years straight had a dream where Jesus came to them and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we still believe this happens. Job chapter 33 verse 15 states, in a dream, in a vision of the night while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and keep his soul from the pit. So just as an aside again and in passing, if you're having troubling dreams right now, like come talk to one of us pastors or to someone in the church that you can trust. Like I, I, one thing I have noticed, this is something I do actually have experience with, is I've known people who, when they start engaging with spiritually dark things in their life, they start having really troubling dreams. And I've never interpreted one, but I have noticed this pattern of like when you start walking away from Jesus and pursuing your own pleasures and pursuing your own lusts or whatever, like sometimes God will start giving you 
difficult dreams. And so I would say, like, if that's something you're experiencing, or maybe you're not doing that and you're still having troubling dreams, like, come talk to us. Maybe there's something we can interpret or counsel, counsel you through or something like that. So um, the cupbearer goes ahead and tells him about his dream. Just to summarize here briefly, the dream is he has a vine, and on that vine are three branches that come off that vine, and at the end of those branches are clusters of grape, and so he sees at the end of his hand, he has the king's cup, takes the grapes, squeezes them into the cup, and then he puts the cup back in Pharaoh's hand. Joseph tells him in verse 12, the three branches, here's the interpretation, the three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Now, skipping down to verse 16 and summarizing once again, the baker was a little more worried about his dream, but after he saw that the cupbearer got a little bit of good news, he kind of perked up a bit and was like, okay, like maybe maybe this will be all right. So he goes ahead and tells Joseph his dream. He's like, okay, so in my dream, I had three baskets of cake on my head and the birds of the air kept coming and eating the bread. And so I kind of picture this baker looking at Joseph and be like, so I'm getting my job back too, right? And then Joseph, I imagine, with sorrowful eyes, turns to the baker and says in verse 18, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head off of your body and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat your flesh from you. Be sure to read that story to your kids before bed. Holy cow. Um, Three days pass, and everything happens exactly how Joseph had predicted. He told the cupbearer back in verse 14, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. But then we read in verse 23, skip down a little ways, it says, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And we read in chapter 41, verse 1, After two whole years. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine, like, Joseph interprets these dreams, three days pass, Pharaoh throws himself a nice little birthday party. The cupbearer and the baker are led out of prison. Joseph hears that the baker has been hung, and he's like, oh, it's tough to be that guy. And he hears that the cupbearer has been reinstated into Pharaoh's staff. And now, it's just a matter of time before he's able to waltz right out of this prison. But the day ends, and he lays his head down on his prison bed. And then another day, and then another, and another for two years, completely forgotten. Could you imagine that God's calling on your life, God's vocation for you is to suffer for two years for reasons that you can't understand at all? How could God's hand, which brought the cupbearer and the baker into prison, God's hand, which caused the dreams, God's hand, which gave Joseph the interpretation, how could God's hand forget to tap the cupbearer on the shoulder and say, remember Joseph? How many of you are upset by this idea? That God's hand could do all this arranging, all this planning, and then apparently disappear for two years. But did it disappear? Disappear. 
Because even though the cupbearer forgot about Joseph, and even though his master Potiphar had thrown him into the pit in order to rot out of sight and out of mind, even though his brothers had likely tried to move on and forget what they had done to their brother, there was someone who never forgot about Joseph. Not even for a moment. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel in the midst of their own suffering and tragedies. And he tells them in Isaiah 49, verse 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. New moms, can you imagine forgetting that you had a kid? You're nursing, you're like, who's, who's this? You know? Could you imagine doing that? God is saying that it's more likely that you'll forget your kids than that he will forget you. His hand hasn't forgotten you. Today, his crucified hands bear the marks of his love for you. And I think Joseph knew this. And why do I say that? Look with me in verse 15, chapter 40. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Now, this is really the only time that we get a glimpse into Joseph's emotional state. Like, it's not like Joseph is just a robot who got uploaded with some really good software, so no matter what comes his way, he just has a good disposition about it. Like, Joseph, Joseph hurt. He felt the sting of injustice. He felt the pain of neglect. He felt the sorrow of unjust suffering. He felt it more than I would wager anyone in this room has actually felt it. And so why do I point at this verse? Why do I point at verse 15 and say that I know that Joseph knew that God had him? I say this because the author doesn't even give us a hint of bitterness in Joseph's tone. Like, have you ever noticed that bitterness tends to remember details? So you get in an argument with your husband about, I don't know, something. But then that argument quickly turns into everything from the last five years. You guys can chuckle because you know it happens. You still remember all the ways that your boss messed up your plans for your career. You can remember the suit he was wearing when he put you on a different project. You remember the exact tone in your mother's voice when she said those words to you. Bitterness holds on to details with a death grip. Sometimes bitterness holds on to things that didn't even happen. You just think of all the things that someone didn't do for you. We feel guilt when we have done something wrong, but we feel bitterness when someone else has done something that's wrong to us. And so we put people, or we attempt to put people, into a prison in our own heart from which there is no escape. But just as Aaron mentioned last week, our bitterness ends up being a prison more for ourselves than it ends up being for anybody else. And so we see Joseph, Joseph, (laughs) we see Joseph, a prisoner physically, but when you see the way that he faithfully operates in whatever situation that he's in, you see a man who is profoundly free from bitterness. We look at Joseph's description in verse 15. He doesn't, he doesn't mention his brother's He doesn't mention how his dad's favoritism screwed up all the kids. He doesn't mention Potiphar or Potiphar's wife. He doesn't mention anyone who's wronged him. And this is the thing for me is like, he doesn't even mention like, I can't believe God would let me, would would allow this to happen to me. Like he doesn't mention details. 
He simply acknowledges the fact that he's suffering unjustly and it would be nice to not be in prison anymore. A proposition I think we can all get behind. And so let me just take you briefly to another biblical story. At the beginning of the book of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 1, we're introduced to a woman named Naomi. Her name, Naomi, in Hebrew means pleasant or sweet. Now, her family had left the promised land during a time of famine, and they went into the land of the Moabites. And while they were there, her husband died and her two sons died. So she was left a bereaved widow. Now, obviously, her, her, uh, her daughters-in-law were widowed by this whole thing as well, since her sons had died. So she turns to them one day and says this, Do not call me Naomi. Do not call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Question for you guys. Who does Naomi hold accountable for her bitterness? It's God, right? Like five times in three verses, she blames God for her circumstances. And I would be willing to bet that there are more than a few of us in here who have that same heart disposition. And it's poison. It is poison to your soul. So here's the picture I want to leave you guys with. Um, I'm going to get some audience participation here. Can you guys make a face? Make the face you make when you put something bitter in your mouth. Let's try it. (laughs) <laughs> no one's, yeah, all right, thank you. Yeah, okay, so in my mind, it's like your face kind of sucks in on itself, like, you know? Now, I want you to, to just take this as a metaphor for what bitterness does to us spiritually. Like, like bitterness pulls us so far into ourselves. And so not only are we aggrieved, we're like the most aggrieved person that we know. If someone has something bad happening, it's like, well, let me tell you about the thing that I got going on with me, you know. So why do I dwell here? Well, for one, I would say, and I I honestly feel like I might be lowballing it, but I'm hedging my bets here, probably 80%, give or take, of the pastoral issues that I've been involved with in my short career here as a non-paid, non-vocational pastor, um, it almost, like, I would say 80%, easily 80% boils down to bitterness. Um, so this is a real problem. My daughter says that all the time. This is a real problem, Dad. <laughs> and so Aaron, I trust, will speak at length next week about the role of forgiveness in our relationships and the way that that can cause healing from bitterness. And when, jo- when we see the story of how Joseph is reunited to his brothers, but this week, here's, here's the thing I want to leave you with. Um, when you see that your life circumstances, when you see that they're arranged by the loving, tender, caring hands of God, when you see that it might be God's vocation for you to enter into a season of suffering and to endure it, it gives you this incredible inner strength that allows you to confront life's difficulties without bitterness. So you're in a difficult season in your marriage. Question, um, what is God's calling for you right now? What is God's vocation for you during this season? What if he's trying to draw something out of you in order to, to sanctify you and sharpen you and make you better through this whole process? What if he's trying to make you the sort of spouse that your spouse needs for their own spiritual growth? So you don't enjoy your job. 
you're, you're underpaid and underappreciated. Could it be that your vocation within your vocation is to learn patience and to learn how to work as though you're working for Jesus, even if your job feels unrewarding and still be a blessing and a benefit to your bosses, to your coworkers, to your clients? Could that be what God is calling you to do right now? Or you have a friend who severely wronged you or a family member. Maybe your vocation right now is to so drink in the love and the mercy and the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, to just drink it in in such a way that you can operate now with grace and mercy and love toward this friend. And just imagine here, God has given you a role. He's given you a vocation. He's given you a part to play. He has called you into his grand story. What kind of character are you going to be? Will you turn in on yourself and in on your own story and miss the bigger story that he's trying to tell the world about himself and about his son? Or will you, like Joseph, see that he has given you a part so that you can be caught up in the beauty of his art? Because when it comes down to it, Joseph's vocation, his calling from God to be a slave and then a prisoner was part of a bigger story. God's story for Joseph just like his story for you and me, is all designed to prepare us for glory. And so we see how everything comes to a head in chapter 41. Let's read together. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Verse 9, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants. Let's not dwell on it, Pharaoh. And put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph And they quickly brought him up out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I, well, Pharaoh just goes ahead and tells him his dreams. We'll summarize it with that. Because it reiterates the dreams like three times. So so Joseph, uh, Joseph comes before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him his dreams. How many dreams did Pharaoh have? Two. Good job. (laughs) Joseph was forgotten for two years. So what did he do with it? He stayed faithful to his calling in the jail. And when his time came, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, he was pulled out of darkness and into light. He was taken out of his prison clothes and dressed in order to stand before a king. 
He was ready for what was coming. God had been preparing him the whole time. And so we should take a moment here to just recognize the theological smack talk that the book of Genesis is laying down on the Egyptians because Pharaoh is supposed to be like this demigod of sorts who is sovereign over the life, the harvest, the Nile, all these things that were vital to the life of the Egyptian culture. And he has a dream of these cows in the Nile and there is nothing he can do about it. Like Genesis is just, I mean, it's underhanded, but it is so good. It is so good. So neither he nor any of the, you know, religious professionals working on the government's dime are able to to figure out any of this. And so they get this slave, this Hebrew slave, a, a servant of the most high God. He's brought up out of the pit in order to interpret for them. And just look at how subtly and respectfully yet unapologetically Joseph proclaims the preeminence of Yahweh in the public square. In verse 16, he states, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph is brought up out of the pit where he had been entrusting God for these last two years, and he entrusts himself to God once more. Now, let's just acknowledge for a second, like a lot of us, a lot of people in our culture are uncomfortable with the idea of God in the public square. I think most of our coworkers are a little weirded out when God comes into our conversations. And honestly, like, I think a lot of us are sort of weirded out by it. Now, I can just say for me, I know that the times where I've sat across from a coworker, whether it's over a meal or over a drink or whatever, over a coffee, something like that, the times when I have brought God into those conversations and it's gone well, it's because I have been walking in dependence on God. And it's just, it flows out of me. It's not forced. It's not awkward. It's just like, this is who I am. I know who I am in Christ. And so I'm just going to talk to you out of my reality right now because you need this, you know? And that's usually when it goes well. It goes poorly when I start thinking like, well, shoot, like I'm I'm a pastor and they kind of know I'm a pastor. So maybe I should say something spiritual and maybe it'll make a really nice sermon illustration one day. Like those are the times it doesn't go very well. So might I humbly suggest to you this, like just walk with God. Walk with God like Joseph walked with God and see what sort of conversations he brings about because of that. Because just like how I know who I am in Christ, Joseph knew who he was in relationship to God. And so he enters into this conversation in a completely genuine way, and he is heard. In verses 17 through 24, Pharaoh tells him about the dreams of the good cows and the bad cows and the good grain and the bad grain. And Joseph listens intently and closely, just as he did with the prisoners. In verses 25 through 32, Joseph interprets the dreams and tells him that the two dreams are actually one. The good cows and the good grains symbolize seven good years of plenty. The harvest will be plentiful for seven whole years. The seven bad cows, ugly and skinny, the seven bad grains blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine that will occur immediately afterwards. And the famine will be so severe that they will forget the abundance of the times of plenty. And Joseph tells them in verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. And then Joseph does something really amazing. In verses 33 through 36, Joseph, who was a prisoner like five minutes ago, starts advising Pharaoh the most powerful man in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at that point in time. In verse 33, he tells them that he needs, Joseph tells Pharaoh that he needs a wise and discerning man who can oversee the years of plenty in order to prepare for the years of famine. 
And as we read at the beginning of our time here today, Pharaoh chose the wisest man in all of Egypt to oversee the rule, and that man was Joseph. So three thoughts here to close our time. This is the closest thing you'll get to points today. On wisdom, on glory, and on Jesus. So first off, on wisdom. Let me pause here to acknowledge this. There is a fear that I and the other pastors have had about this story about Joseph where it just becomes a moralizing sermon here. And so there's this, I have had this reading this story. There's this knee-jerk response to read Joseph's life and be like, oh, I just need to trust God the way that Joseph trusted God. Oh, I just need to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in, like Joseph was content in every circumstance he was in. Oh, I just need to be successful at everything I do, just like Joseph was successful at everything he does. Is that the point of this story? Is that why this is in the Bible? So you can look to Joseph and see how much better he is than you. (laughs) Is that what God is trying to point out? What is this story trying to say? For the reader of the book of Genesis, ever since Adam rebelled against God, we are left searching for someone who can break the curse that he introduced into this world. As the story goes, Adam, he really, what happened is he grasped for power before he was ready for it. He took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil of Tob and Ra, as it's stated in the Hebrew. That'll be important soon. And Adam said, I am going to define good and evil for myself. And if there is a better way to describe the problem with what's wrong with all of humanity and what's wrong with the many decisions we make in our own lives and that we determine good and evil for ourselves, I have yet to hear it. This is at the foundation of everything that's wrong. And so from Adam on, we see that humanity is determining good and bad for themselves. They sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. And then we meet a man, finally, And even though his life looks like a flaming dumpster from the outside, even though it looks bad and evil from the outside, this man is able to entrust himself to God. Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Thank you. It's the beginning of wisdom. If anyone ever asks you what wisdom is, it is the ability to tell the difference between good and bad in whatever circumstance you're in. What is the good decision? What is the bad decision? What is the best decision? That's wisdom. Joseph is really the wisest man that we've met in this whole book up to this point. When Joseph, or rather when Pharaoh is describing the cows, he's describing them as our English translations have as good cows and ugly cows. The Hebrew words here are tobe cows and raw cows. Because God has taken Joseph under his wing, because he's been using these years to train and sharpen him, Joseph sees Tob and Ra, and he knows exactly how to approach them, because God has been his teacher, like a father with his son. God has been preparing Joseph for the crown. And so God uses his wisest servant to save the known world. Okay, second thought here um, on glory. What allowed Joseph to persevere during his times of suffering? It was a vision of glory. Again, how many dreams did Pharaoh have? Two. How many dreams did the prisoners have? Two. How many dreams did Joseph have? Two. Good job. 
There's a reason we started our time today reading the end of the story, because the end of the story informs all the other parts of the story. Have you ever gotten to the end of a book or an end of a movie where it's such a surprise, you're like, oh my goodness, I need to go back and reread it, or I need to go back and rewatch it, and all of a sudden you see throughout the whole movie how the director or the author or whoever was setting you up the whole time for the ending that he was preparing. Joseph had two dreams where God revealed that one day he would be seated in glory. And remember what Joseph said to Pharaoh, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. How often did that comfort him in his nights in the prison? Joseph had two visions of glory, and so he knew that he, when he was thrown into slavery, when he was thrown into prison, he knew in all of his dire circumstances that God was somehow and in some way moving him toward glory. And so we sit here today with something in our hands far more certain than any dream. God's message in scripture to us is a message of hope in the midst of our trials. We know the end of the story. There will be a day when the glory of God comes back to dwell with his people here on earth where we will be rulers and heirs with Christ. That is the end of our story. How does that inform your today? There's too many passages to go through at this point. But let me just read a few of them. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And Psalm chapter 30, verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. My prayer is that this vision of glory sustains you through your suffering, your trials, and your difficulties right now. And third and final thought, you know, we've been waiting for someone to come around who will undo Adam's mess, right? For anyone who's reading the book of Genesis with a discerning eye, we've all been waiting for a second Adam. Is Joseph it? Because let me spoil this for you. A very powerful Egypt is going to use Joseph's Joseph's wisdom in order to extort its own people. And a couple hundred years after this, another pharaoh is going to come and take the descendants of Joseph and all of his brothers and throw them into slavery. So Joseph, for all the good that he's able to do, he still doesn't save the world, at least not in the way that the world needs saving. The world needs more than bread. And so what we need is a greater, more wise servant than Joseph to enter this story and save this world from itself. And so, as we do every Sunday, we turn our eyes away from ourselves. We look outside of our own little bitter story and put our eyes past Joseph and onto Jesus. Jesus has always been a king, but he gave up his crown in order to come down here and dwell with us. He was falsely accused, he was imprisoned, he was beaten, and eventually he was nailed to a Roman cross. 
Jesus took all this mess, all the lies, the murder, the anger, the bitterness, the self-seeking, the hatred, the malice, the envy, all the mess of this world, and he put it to death in his body. And he forgives you for participating in any of that. His blood cleanses you from all of it. And he invites you now to take your bitterness, to take your anger, your sin, to take all of it and just put it on the cross with him and let it die. And as a resurrected savior, he invites you into a new way of living. He invites us to be rulers with him because he changed the the rules for rulers. In order to rule, now you serve. You serve your family. You serve your church body. You serve your neighbors. You serve your coworkers. You serve your community because that's what leadership in this new world resurrected in the hope of Jesus is going to look like. And so I'll end our time here by reading a text that we so often go to in our gatherings on these Sundays as we turn to the pages of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. It is yours. This mind is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, a thing to be held on to with a death grip. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became the lowest of the low. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because Jesus knows exactly what it's like to lose a crown in order to gain one. And so will you join yourself to this story? Will you follow Jesus? Will you see his ways? Will you see the way that his hand has been directing your steps to this moment right now so that you can walk with him for the rest of your life as a new creature in him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm grateful for this time this morning. And I'd simply ask that your grace and mercy would overflow to us as we seek to see your hand and to see your face in the midst of our trials, our difficulties, our suffering, and our pain. I ask that you be with those particularly who perhaps got some bad news this week or have been processing through the difficulties of their own lives and the frustrations and the disappointments and everything else that they've confronted in the days leading up to today. I pray that you grant us faithfulness, loyalty, and love for Jesus that will sustain us through all of our difficulties, through all of our pain, through all of our hardship, so that we might not look like Joseph, but look like Jesus and shine his light into this world, a light that is so needed in a world covered with so much darkness and pain and despair. May the hope of Jesus flow out of us as it flowed out of Joseph, and as we hope to see it transform the lives of many in our city, in our state, and in our world. Be with us, I pray. Be with those particularly who this message was particularly hard for. Help them to let go of bitterness, to let go of the pain, to let go of the details, to thrust themselves on your mercy, and to experience the healing that comes in the name of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray.
Amen.